Today, Ron and I continue our discussion on medical debt and how it hurts healthcare providers. Plus, we put on our thinking caps and try to fix the problem of the lucrative orphan drug market. Happy New Year, everyone, from Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. This is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with he, with me is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, who has finally made it into the new year, Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for joining us. No problem. Happy New Year. I hope uh, that you had a good uh, Christmas and a good New Year holiday uh, that wasn't bogged down by uh, too much traveling issues. No, I, I uh, the traveling I did was by car, so I controlled my own destiny, unlike an awful lot of Americans. Yeah. Well, uh, if anyone's still curious, in the last uh, Friday Pulse check uh, before, before the end of the new year, the very end, there's a song that goes out to everyone uh, who's, who was stuck at the airport. And it's a song by Nick Lowe called uh, Christmas at the Airport. And uh, it, it, it rang true for a lot of people, unfortunately. But now that we're into 2023, hopefully things will uh, move a little bit better for you if that's how you had to spend the rest of your new year, or rest of the previous year, rather. As we head into 2023, we're excited that we're going to have some interesting things coming up on the Flatlining podcast and at flatlining.net. We'll have more on that, hopefully, in the near future. Today, Ron, I want to talk about two issues that we have talked previously about, but I want to go into more detail about some of these situations today. And the first one is I want to spend a little bit more time talking about medical debt. Kaiser Health News, uh, who we've frequently cited before, had an investigation published at the end of last year uh, in which they found that 5,100 hospitals across the U.S. have policies that use legal action or, as they said, other aggressive tactics against patients uh, to recoup medical debt. And some of this includes denying non-intala care, uh, credit reporting, lawsuits or liens, or s even selling some of that debt. And I know we've talked previously, especially when New York passed their law, that you couldn't have liens on medical debt in that state. But I, I think this warrants a further conversation because as Kaiser Health News attempts to be patient advocates, on the one hand, they seem to disregard the fact that these were services that were rendered and there is money to be owed, even if it really hurts that there is money to be owed. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that sort of strikes me of this, and I get it, it's emotional when you talk about medical debt, and you talk about medical debt because a lot of times the patient couldn't avoid it. It's not their fault. They got sick, so to speak. Um, but all these aggressive tactics are the exact same tactics that happen if you well, I don't know, don't pay your mortgage or your credit mm -hmm. card bill or your car loan. I mean, one of the differences here with medical debt is they can't come and repossess your new knee or, you know, your right. health. Um, stop paying your mortgage, see how long it takes before they repossess your house and evict you or stop paying your car and see how long it takes before somebody comes and gets it. Um, mm -hmm. So you're right. These are services that are provided. The people that are providing them, you know, can't just write everything off. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to deal with this kind of kind of medical debt in this country. 
And we, I know we've talked before that there is a difference between medical debt and other forms of debt. And, and we take that seriously that you don't choose to go into medical debt, unlike right. you do with a student loan or a mortgage or a car loan. Uh, it's something that for many Americans just happens upon them because they're diagnosed with a serious illness. They have a lengthy hospital stay or whatever the case may be. Um, one of the critiques that uh, Kaiser Health News had was that they said that 40% of the hospitals that researched didn't have complete information on their websites about how they handle medical debt. Is that something that really needs to be, or I guess necessarily needs to be public information when you're looking at a hospital website? Because on the one hand, as we just said, if you're not choosing it, it's not necessarily something you're going to research before deciding which hospital you're going to go to. Yeah, and I, and I I wonder whether that would have changed anything. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, is somebody going to go, well, I know my knee hurts really bad, but now that I've researched deeply into the website and figured out that, you know, they may sell my debt to a creditor who's going to keep calling me every day, I guess I'm not going to get it fixed. You know, I just don't think that that would, um, would necessarily change behavior greatly. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it's true that it's not probably completely out there, but I, I don't know what it would do differently if if it really were. Mm -hmm. I, one of the things I also mentioned, too, is a few uh, hospitals that have barred aggressive collection policies is, is what they've said. Um, and it's, they do have a very interesting infographic where they've compiled information based off the hospitals they've looked at and have published what their collection policies are. And they found that UCLA, uh, Stanford, the University of Vermont Medical Center, and Oshner Health, which is in New Orleans, uh, no longer have aggressive collection policies. What does that really, what does that mean for the patients? And then secondarily, what does that mean for the providers that work at those hospitals, or perhaps the providers that are contracted with those hospitals? Well, you know, there's some interesting commonality amongst those four. Those are four very expensive, high-quality but very expensive institutions. This isn't rural hospitals, okay? Mm -hmm. There are also four institutions with incre incredibly large endowments and investment income. So um, I don't think that saying, you know, taking a look at UCLA, Stanford, University of Vermont, Oxnard, I don't think that's really um, applicable to the vast majority of mm -hmm. hospitals and doctors across the country. Okay. You know, saying that the the rich facilities with large endowments don't have to chase down, you know, aggressive tactics for medical debt is a little bit dishonest, in my opinion. It, I, You know, and that's a very good point that I, I didn't necessarily think of when we were putting together uh, the outline for this program. I'm looking at the infographic here, and I did one sampling from our area, they've got the UNC Medical Center in Chapel mm -hmm. Hill, and they mentioned that credit reporting is allowed under their policies, but selling patient debt, denying non-emergency care, and other legal actions are not allowed. But then just to the point you just mentioned, you take a look at the, the Clara Barton Medical Center in Hoisington, Kansas, uh, which is still a nonprofit or government hospital, um, but it's got 25 or fewer beds it's unclear whether or not they allow selling of debt. It's unclear whether or not they deny care, but they do allow legal action or credit reporting because of medical debt. And it's exactly what you point that the demographic there is significantly different than at a UCLA or a Stanford. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's really unfair to sort of compare apples to oranges and things like that. Now we've talked about that. It's true that medical debt can be damaging for patients. And that's how they start off this article is, is, is by, by pointing out that there's more and more evidence 
finding that medical debt causes harm to 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 patients but how damage it how damaging is medical debt to physicians and the hospitals that they work for well you know first of all debt causes damage to pay, to individuals i mean you know people who you know in the middle of the housing crisis couldn't pay the increased interest on their mortgage loan lost their houses many of them became homeless um you know not being able to pay you off your credit cards can cause problems you being able to you know pay other issues so debt in and of itself does create problems um but there's somebody on the other end of that that is counting that as um, a receivable. And let's take, for mm -hmm. example, you know, my small business. Um, I provide services. I bill my customers. If they don't pay me, I don't pay people's paychecks. I mean, you know, they can't just walk away from that. They owe me that debt because I provided services, and and I have to collect that information. That's how I pay, you know, my employees, et cetera. So, you know, writing off, just writing off medical debt means how is the hospital going to pay their nurses? How are the doctors going to pay their nurses? How are they going to pay their, their front desk check-in people or their people who send out bills, et cetera. So you've got to look at debt like it's a circular system. You know, one of the things that uh, early on in my college career, you know, uh, one of my economics professors said, well, you know, when we talk about the national debt. Why don't we call it the national asset? And I said, what are you, nuts? And he goes, it's an asset to whoever holds the debt. You know, they've, they've yeah. lent us that money, and they're now viewing that that as an asset because they need to get that money back. So, yeah, debt's damaging. It's damaging to people who owe the debt. It's damaging to the people who, you know, need to collect that debt to pay their bills if they can't collect it. It's also, I think, helpful to understand when talking about medical debt to to put it in perspective from a size perspective, Okay. Right now, it's estimated that there's about $195 billion of medical debt out there, people mm -hmm. who owe that money. That's a big number, okay? And about one in 10 adults have some amount of medical debt, okay? So it's about 10% of the population. You know, there's about 11 million people that owe more than $2,000. That's a fairly big chunk. And about 3 million people that owe more than $10,000. Okay, so you think, wow, these are really big numbers. But you gotta put it in perspective. $195 billion is less than 5% of all the money that's spent on healthcare per year. Mm -hmm. And that $195 billion doesn't happen every year. Some of that debt's old. Okay, yeah. comparatively speaking, we've heard a lot about student loan debt. There's $1.7 trillion owed in student loan debt. So $195 billion or almost 10 times that amount is owned in student loan debt. And that's spread over 45 million people. So yeah, medical debt is a problem. We need to figure it out. But comparatively speaking, it's nothing compared to what's happening with student loan debt right now. Mm -hmm. And the average student loan debt is significantly higher than the average medical debt. Now, as we talked about before, you could say, well, but people didn't choose to get sick and those people chose to go to college, true but it's a much bigger problem in mm -hmm. this country right now than, than medical debt. So just keep, you know, keep it in perspective is it's right. not as big as student debt and it's money that's owed to people who provided a service. Mm -hmm. When you think about, as we compare it to the student loan problem, because I think that's a good comparison just because it's a, it's a national issue that mm -hmm. people care about right now. During COVID and even up until I think now, because it's been extended, um, you haven't had to pay back student loans and you weren't earning um, penalty fees or mm -hmm. I even think interest in some cases um, because of COVID. 
Do we see a similar stay for medical debt across the country, or does it vary from hospital to hospital? Um, it, it varies from hospital to hospital. Now, I do know a lot of um, hospitals and physician groups backed off on a lot of their their policies for collecting debt during the middle of COVID, and for several reasons. One, just because it was the right thing to do and people were suffering and not getting paid. But also they knew that it, it might be a, a pointless thing. If somebody doesn't have a job because of COVID or they've been shut down, you know, collecting that money is going to get harder. So, um, but it does vary from from hospital or provider to provider. Mm-hmm. One of the other things the Kaiser Health News article uh, talked about was the how, how some of these hospitals handle financial aid. And they mentioned that for nonprofit institutions, they have to demonstrate that they provide some sort of charity care, some sort of financial aid uh, to people who, who go there. Should there be, uh, well, before I said, one of the criticisms in here too is that many of these institutions didn't have clear financial aid policies on their websites. They don't have them on their bills. Now, as we talked about before, I don't know if people are necessarily going to look at it before they go to the hospital, but after they receive this bill, they may have trouble finding that sort of information. Should there be a law mandating that that information about financial aid be published clearly on a bill or clearly on a website so that certain people who may need it would be aware that it's there? Yeah, and you you could argue that it would make sense to have – more clear information available when whenever anybody is is receiving a service that might turn into debt and i I don't know as i would argue with that conceptually you know implementing that becomes extremely difficult i mean how many of us any of any of us not ever had that situation where electronically you're wanting to sign up for something and you've got to scroll through 18 pages of legalese so you can get to the bottom and click yes i read it okay yeah and none of us read that crap, no. but they can say, oh, no, we provided you with all that information and you you verified that you certified that you read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of the same thing could happen is it could be there on the website. Is anybody going to read it? How many people are going to understand right. it? Um, and and to what expense do you have to go to to? in essence, protect people from themselves. I mean, we had that back in the housing crash when people signed mortgages they should have never signed and then said, well, I didn't understand it. Well, at some point, there has to also be some personal responsibility to it. So, now, and I'm not trying to give hospitals a free pass here. I think there should be better information about the potential debt you could be signing on to and what that looks like and payment policies, et cetera. Um, but at some point, there also has to be responsibility at the consumer level. Right. Absolutely. And again, even if it's passed into a law, you think about the fact that prices, excuse me, hospitals are supposed to be publishing their prices on their website as part of the price price transparency law, excuse me, from back in, I think it was 2020 or 2021, and that still hasn't been enforced uh, by HHS yet. And I think it was Kaiser Health News that found it was few and far between for the hospitals that actually have complied with that rule so far. Now, as we talk about medical debt, there are people that will argue that this is a valid argument for single-payer health insurance, or even perhaps mandatory health insurance, as uh, the Affordable Care Act tried to do with the individual mandate. Do you think that this is a valid argument for single-payer health insurance? Um, I, I think it's an argument that people could say single-payer could eliminate medical debt. Um, it could. 
now that would create bigger problems right um in and of itself so it's you know it's a little bit like saying that oh well rat poisoning will cure cancer well yeah it will because it'll kill you um so I, I think it's a little bit of a of a disconnect there the other thing to understand is guaranteed insurance doesn't necessarily guarantee the elimination of medical debt only if it provides 100 percent coverage mm-hmm. um, the affordable care act through the exchanges by definition the bronze plan which is where more people are only covers 60 percent of all your potential expenses 40 mm-hmm. percent are still on yours so that's medical debt so when people talk about well if we just had everybody had insurance there'd be no medical debt no absolutely not right you're still responsible for co-pays co-insurance deductibles the only way it would happen is if we did something like the last version of medicare for all which meant oh it's all free health care for everybody sure then there'd be no medical debt there'd be other issues that we'd have to deal with but there would at least be no medical debt right that cost of the medical debt would be passed yeah. on to the taxpayer you absolutely know, however, however they want to you know yeah. charge that as a sales tax or as an income tax yeah there is no free lunch <laughs> you know right. that's been said quite a bit it's true how has the no surprises act uh, affected medical debt or really isn't has it even really affected medical debt because it has solved the problem of surprise billing um for the for the patient, you know, they're not going to get a they're not going to get a bill from an out of network group that was at an in network hospital. So, has that affected medical debt in any way? I mean, at an individual micro level, there are definitely people who, because they were protected by the No Surprises Act, aren't facing a large bill. Um, and, and so, I, don't get me wrong; it, it, it there have been situations where that has probably, you know, changed people's lives from getting this massive out of network surprise bill to now not good for that mm-hmm. now at the macro level has it changed the 195 billion dollars not marketably you know it's a rounding right. error um, because the services that were a- addressed by surprise billing are a very small portion of the you know the four trillion dollars that get spent on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you take about an emergency room visit, the doctor, which was what it got after was making sure the ER doctor couldn't balance bill you. That's the small part of the bill. The big part of the bill is the facility bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've got a, you know, $10,000 deductible that you haven't met the first time you go in the ER, you're going to have a pretty big debt coming out of that, regardless right. of price billing. Right. One of the things we're introducing in 2023 is the chat feature with the Flatlining Podcast. If you have the Substack app on iPhone or Android, you can engage with us and other listeners of the program by going to the chat feature for Flatlining. You can find this program there and listen to this program as well using the Substack app, and you can chat with us there as well. We want to hear from you about what you think about medical debt. How does your practice handle medical debt, and what reforms do you think could be introduced. We may even talk about your topics on the program. Ron, before we switch topics, my last question is, is, is kind of the, it, it, it goes into this kind of thing that we've talked about before, the, the tired cliche that all doctors are, are rich and are sitting on just piles <laughs> of money. How, so this is coming, this would be a question coming from someone who, who doesn't understand how the healthcare system works. How could a multi-million dollar hospital ses- system be damaged by my $10,000 of medical debt or my $20,000 of medical debt? Well, um, you could use that same logic to say, well, you know, how could the U.S. government be damaged by the fact if I don't pay my taxes this year? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm the only one that doesn't pay, you're right. I mean, if one person doesn't fulfill their debt obligation with a hospital, it's not going to put that hospital under. 
Um, the problem is you don't get to be just that one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and if everybody doesn't pay their debt, then the hospital does go under. Just like if everybody refuses to pay their taxes, we don't have any tax revenue. Mm-hmm. So that's the fallacy with that. Well, how can I be impacted? Well, you individually aren't, but you collectively, meaning if everybody else follows your example, are. Right. Um, and hospitals, most hospitals run on a fairly thin margin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen recently with, you know, with labor costs going up, a lot of hospitals are posting fairly significant losses this year because they just don't have that kind of margin that, mm-hmm. that other businesses do. And I remember they were posting significant losses last year, too, coming out of mm-hmm. COVID. And I, yeah. we, we briefly looked at the, the um, in, and compared it to the income of some of the big payers, and perhaps we'll do a similar thing for this year. Uh, later on the Flatlining Podcast. You can find more information about this investigation from Kaiser Health News. It's linked in the show notes for this program on the, pro- on the platform you're listening on and at flatlining.net. Ron, the second topic I wanted to talk about today was an article that came up uh, over the holiday weekend from World Magazine. And World Magazine, for those of you who don't, is an evangelical publication. It's published online, and it's also a print magazine. Uh, and this was posted on December 22nd, but it will be in the January 14 print issue. And it was a for World Magazine. I was fa- I was rather impressed with the length and depth they went into in this particular article about orphan drugs. And the, the title of the article is Life-Saving Treatments with Blockbuster Profits. And I thought we would use this as an opportunity, again, to talk about how drugs are developed, how drug companies make their money, um, focusing specifically on these niche but important drugs uh, that, that they're calling orphan drugs. Um, one of the things they pointed out was that the sales of orphan drugs in 2022 made up 17% of all prescription drug sales, which is about $150 billion. Um, and my, I guess my first question is, 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 what is an orphan drug and what qualifies as an orphan drug? Yeah, so an orphan drug, and it's a, it's a definition that was created um, really back in 83 when there was a law passed to help the development of orphan drugs. Orphan drugs are those drugs that are going to deal with a problem that impacts less than one out of every 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's, it's not a high impact. It's not a drug that deals with cholesterol. Or even, for example, and I, you know, we've talked about this before, my oldest son has autism. Mm -hmm. Autism is an incident rate of one out of every 55. Okay. These are, are rare conditions or diseases that impact less than one out of every 200,000 people. And so the the Orphan Drug Act was created to help in, I guess, incentivize some of these companies to start creating drugs to help some of these people. Yeah, the idea was that the drug companies were, and it's true, there were not many orphan drugs developed before the Orphan Drug Act because there there wasn't going to be that return on investment. Well, I could do this great drug, but if it only helps a small number of people, how am I ever going to get back the money that I sank into the R&D? So they did the Orphan Drug Act, and basically what it did, amongst other things, was it provided some generous tax credits for companies spending R&D money 
it gave them a seven-year monopoly on that drug, a, a patent, if you will, on that drug. So now nobody else could sell it. That helps them get that, um, you know, get that return on investment when they are successful. And then there were some exemptions from some fees from the FDA, et cetera. But it created a financial incentive for companies to provide, do the R&D and develop these orphan drugs mm-hmm. um, to help individuals with these rare diseases. One of the things that this article points out is that these drugs can be very, very expensive, especially when compared to other traditional drugs or specialty drugs. And they've got a pretty good infographic in here uh, that we'll make sure is in the show notes as well that shows that since from 1998 to 2017, the average cost of, you know, even a specialty drug compared to an orphan drug. And in 1998, the specialty drug cost more, closer to $35,000. Whereas now, especially drugs around, you could say around sixty, seventy thousand dollars. While the orphan drug in twenty seventeen cost over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Obviously, one of the reasons for the cost being so high is that there's not a large amount of patients using them, as you would have for a specialty drug or even a traditional drug. So, explain a little bit about you know how that price is determined. Um, either through the research and development process or thereafter, after it becomes approved? Well, um, the price for a drug is really fairly simple. It's what will the market bear? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, um, you know, there isn't this idea that they're going to say, well, we only need to make a return of X percent. Okay, if you've got a fantastic drug and the market will bear a pretty high price for it, that's what you charge. Um, and that's no different than what, people charge for other goods and services. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's how free market works. But the price of orphan drugs really is much more related to and why they're so expensive to a, a lack of competition. Remember, they get a mm-hmm. seven year patent on this thing. Okay, so they've got a monopoly on this drug. And b the fact that to a large degree, the consumer of this product is not the purchaser. You know, they're going to try to make the insurance companies or the government pay for these drugs. So you've got mm-hmm. this, you know, this incredible drug that solves a very difficult problem. Um, I've got a monopoly of it. You can only get it through me, and it's going to be very expensive. That's how that works. And it has turned into a very lucrative business for these pharma companies. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit, because you mentioned that the, the consumer doesn't necessarily have to be the payer. How does insurance generally cover an orphan drug for a patient that, that may need it? Well, it's a little bit all over the board. Okay, so some insurance companies exclude or don't cover these orphan drugs, or they don't cover them right away. And they'll wait until their um, standard of care or or have more wide approval. Um, Some self-funded employers who can make that decision on their own will either cover or not cover the drugs. So one of the problems with these orphan drugs is they get developed. You think, hallelujah, that my my child or myself with my rare condition, suddenly there's a drug that's available, and then you find out your insurance doesn't cover it. And then you're like, oh, now what do I do? I can't afford the 100000 or the $300,000 that that drug is going to cost for a year. So um, some insurances cover, some don't. And then that leaves that patient in a difficult position when they don't cover it. Right. And in that case, are we ending up back where we started in the previous topic with medical debt? Well, um, yes and no. Okay. I mean, usually these drug scenarios don't result in medical debt because you don't get the drug unless you can show that you can pay for it. Right. 
Um, it's not like walking to a hospital ER or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you get, you know, you get sort of pre-certified if you're going to have coverage or not. And if you don't, they're going to look for a source of, of payment because these are elective services. One of the drugs they talked about specifically in the article, and I, and I don't want to comment either way on whether or not that this is a good or bad thing. We're not calling anyone out in particular. But one of the things that's pointed out in the article is the drug uh, Humira, which the article says is the most lucrative drug in the world. Yep. Um, it's developed by AbbVie, and it's primarily treating rheumatoid arthritis. And it had orphan status in 2008 to treat juveniles, even though, as the article points out, that more than 90% of its prescriptions are for non-orphan adult rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. the annual cost being about $70,000. Why is this the most lucrative drug in the world, and is this an egregious example of, of perhaps a loophole in the Orphan Drug Act? Well, uh, both, okay. <laughs> to be honest. I mean, when you're chasing this much money, I mean, we're talking about it's it's a similar sort of economic principle of, well, why do people risk, you know, you know, importing drugs into this country when they know they can get caught and go to jail? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of money if you're successful. You know, why do people why do drug companies do the, the R&D on an orphan drug? Because there's a lot of money if you're successful. Right. And just like tax loopholes, there's a lot of money if you can find out a legal loophole. So this drug, this RA drug, is a perfect example. Hey, let's get orphan status under the pediatric range of it. Um, And then let's also make sure that it's available for adults because we can, you know, we benefit from that that orphan status pricing and protection. Um, And there's a lot of ways that drug companies have figured out how to repackage things, change Mm -hmm. the dosage, um, you know, find a, a, a use for it. Um, that does have orphan status, like uh, I know Botox, um, allergens Botox was had orphan status to treat a rare eye disease, mm-hmm. but then that turned into it also treats migraines, which is not an orphan status right. scenario. So drug companies have become very, very good at finding these loopholes, taking existing drugs and repackaging them um, so that they can get the return on investment their shareholders are looking for, and they've been very successful at it. One thing that this article points out, too, is that AbbVie, which apparently 60% of their uh, revenue comes from the Humira drug, they are able, and other drug companies, are able to kind of triple dip. You know, the taxpayer helps fund mm-hmm. some of the, to the development of some of these drugs. They pay out of pocket or they pay insurance to get the drugs. And then the taxpayer money pays all or more of it for low-income patients. Is this a loophole that Congress should look at, or is this small fish in the big pond? Well, um, it's it's not small fish in the big pond. I mean, drug drug costs are a significant part of what our problem is. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think that um, fixing these little loopholes is like putting band-aids on bullet wounds. We've got to revamp the way we pay for all of how drugs get developed and how they get paid for. We've got to change the game rather than just fixing this one rule. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it's going to be because it's not just in the orphan drug status. So, for example, I just there's a, an article I just saw today that there's a new drug that's likely to get approved this year that they think will knock AbbVie off of the, the, the status of the most profitable drug. Now, this new drug, interestingly enough, isn't going to have orphan status, in the, in its, but, but it's a, another example of how drug companies are figuring out how to you know, take things and make more profit. This new drug will deal with weight loss, mm. and it's not a new drug. 
it's an old drug that's getting repurposed. It's a drug to, for dealing with um, with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, is and this it's, the one that has been been prescribed off label in recent uh, well, months that has caused a shortage of the diabetes drug? No, no, you're, that's yep. that's Wagovi. Okay, okay, this is going to be the next version because it's okay. actually Wagovi a little bit better. But but let's let's look at Wagovi. Okay, Wagovi is the same drug as what's called Ozempic. It's the exact mm-hmm. same drug, just yep. different dosage. Okay. Ozempic's been on the market for a long time, did great. They figured out that while people were on Ozempic to deal with their diabetes, they lost weight. Mm-hmm. So the manufacturer, in uh, Nova Nordisk, um, did a clinical trial to say, well, what happened if we up the dosage? Now, this was not an incredibly expensive clinical trial. It didn't mm-hmm. sink billions of dollars. And they realized that, hey, you up the dosage, you lose even more weight. So they came out with the same drug, slightly different dosage. And they called it Wagovi. Now, here's the interesting part of all this. If you didn't have coverage for Ozempic, you would have to pay cash out of pocket, about 200 bucks a month. Okay. Do you know what the cash out of pocket price is for Wagovi, which is the same drug, just a bit different dosage? Well, based on this conversation, I'm going to say it's probably in the uh, somewhere in the thousands. Yeah, it's it's sixteen hundred dollars. Okay. So it's eight times more expensive than the same drug in a different package, a uh, different strength. So it, it's a, points out another scenario where a drug company said, hey, we got a good thing here, mm-hmm. and let's make even more money on it. Um, now, this the, the new drug, and I forget what it's called, but the new drug that's coming out is a similar, it's a diabetic drug, but this one is actually a little bit better. And they're saying mm-hmm. this one could top $25 billion a year. Okay. In sales, once it comes out, and it's likely to be fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars a month if you don't have coverage for it. So, the point is the whole game's broken. Just fixing the loophole for orphan drugs isn't going to, you know, change the world. We've got to fi- fix how we, you know, how we spend research money, how we pay for drugs, what kind of scenarios are involved with that because it is incredibly lucrative. I looked. Um, I looked the other day, um, if you look at gross profit margin by market segment, you know, housing, mm-hmm. pharma, retail, cars, et cetera, the, the two different sort of pharma market segments, which is biotech and pharma, have gross profit margins of around 65%. Mm-hmm. There's only one other market category that meets or exceeds that, and that's the financial, that's banking, investment, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. So that's pretty lofty company. You know, the guys who are making a killing on Wall Street doing that kind of investment stuff, which a lot of people think is, they don't look at them very favorably, is the only market segment making better gross margins than, than pharma. And, and the reason I bring that up is, don't tell me about all the cost for R&D. Don't tell me that, well, it's just expensive to make that first drug. And it is. Mm-hmm. And only about 12% of drugs ever get out of clinical trials and are approved. But there's such a massive payoff that you're doing just fine. You're making a gross margin of over 60%. Right. Okay. That's the game we got to fix. So if we have to fix the game and we can put on our, our, our congressman hats here for a few minutes, how, how would we go about doing that legislatively. Does it start at the state level? Does it start at the federal level? What legislation needs to change to really materially change the game? I think the legislation that needs to change happens has to happen on the federal level. And it has to be a 
a process that decides what gets paid for, okay, and what gets covered. And it has to be universal, okay? If if a drug's going to be covered, it needs to be covered. It needs to be covered by Medicare, Medicaid, all commercial insurance is self-funded, et cetera, okay? Um, but part of that is it going to be covered has to include an economic factor to it. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to our weight loss drugs, okay? Um, okay, this new product that comes out gets approved. And it's only marginally better than Wagovi, then it shouldn't be paid for at a higher price. Now, what if this new company comes out and says, hey, we got a drug that's as good as Wagovi, maybe a little bit better. And we don't need 1600 bucks for it. We'll sell it for 1000 Okay, you're now the frontline drug. You're approved. Mm-hmm. Well, the manufacturer of Wagovi is going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't need 1000 We need 800 Okay, now you're the new drug. Right. And and what will happen then is economic factors like happen everywhere else when somebody comes out with a, you know, with a new tablet computer and says ours is better and cheaper is you'll be competing not just on clinical efficacy, but also on price or cost that on the drugs where there are multiple options and forcing these drug companies to compete on price as well as the quality we will pay for the orphan drug stuff. You know, we'll pay for that small thing that happens. I guarantee you that if we had that kind of scenario out there, rheumatoid arthritic drug would not have the price of what that one has. Mm-hmm. There'd be too much competition. But right now what happens is it gets approved purely based on clinical efficacy. And there's no concern about cost because the government or the insurance companies are going to pay for it. So we've got to inject that part of of free market economics where price is included in it um, into the marketplace and mm-hmm. that'll fix our that'll fix our cost problem what what about the the issue with with patents and copyright because i this is a this is important i think that that the government has a duty to protect mm-hmm. you know intellectual property people that create inventions and have patents now granted according to this article abvi has 132 patents on on humira but what role will that play when we change the way drugs are done and, and so, they're developed in this country? So I, I'm fine with patents. I mean, um, uh, Elon Musk had a patent technology on his batteries, mm-hmm. okay? And it helped him for a while. But you know what? Other smart people figured it out as well. So as long as they're not just copying your formula, um, yes, you should have a patent on that formula. If you develop the formula for that drug or the science behind it or whatever, that's fine. But just like this new weight loss drug that's coming out, it's a different drug. It right. didn't infringe on the patent of Ozempic, and there's another drug out there that um, that has roughly the same thing. The drugs for rheumatoid arthritis don't, you know, don't um, infringe upon each other. If a drug company comes out with a drug that cures breast cancer, they deserve to be rich. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they don't deserve is to protect those enormous margins when somebody else come out with a different drug that also cures breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And if they're willing to sell it cheaper, that's how free market works. Right. Um, So this is, to me, this isn't a patent issue. um, As long as that patent only applies to that drug and that formula. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking too, you know, into the future when we're waiting for generics for some of these to to come out as well, how, how that might change. Yeah, and and that's and that's fine. Just like there's you know there's lifetimes on certain patents and things other than drugs, you know when the generic when the patents up and the generic comes out, then hey, you've had a good run, you've made your money, um, and that's fine. 
um, and then we deal with the generics um, because it really those aren't the issues. It's the it's what's happening while they're still under patent that's the issue, and, and part of it is creating um, other problems for us within healthcare. Um, when you think about this issue around these, you know these these new wonderful weight loss drugs. Obesity is an enormous problem in this country, and it's costing us billions of dollars every year. And to the extent that some of these drugs are priced out of reach of people who could use them, we're adding to the overall healthcare cost, even in addition to the exorbitant profits that Novo Nordisk is making or mm -hmm. these other companies are going to make. So it's all interrelated. Mm -hmm. And I just think uh, I was reading over the holiday about uh, the Steamboat Willie, the original Mickey Mouse, is, is mm -hmm. finally coming up to, to lose its copyright protection, even after it was extended by Congress in the 90s. And uh, as a way of loopholing around it, uh, you'll notice that Disney has started including Steamboat Willie in some of their logos, which they have then trademarked, to yeah. try and say, well, now it's part of the logo, so you yeah. can't use it. Whereas I'm, I'm seeing that Congress may address that particular issue by saying, yeah, we may have created a mutant form of copyright law by allowing yeah. that. Uh, and I'm just curious, you know, it, could the same thing happen here where we have some issue where things just get slightly tweaked and then the patents extended and, oh. and, and these companies can continue to charge the amounts that they charge on them. I mean, and that's why you have to be ever vigilant for it. I mean, it, you know, um, it absolutely could happen, and, and that's why we need to make sure that we try to close that off as much as possible, that that rational minds, when it gets in front of, a let's say, the judicial branch, say, no, come on, it's the same damn thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're not allowing that. I mean, this fight has been happening for decades around tax law. Close a loophole, some lawyer figures out a different way around it. I mean, um, you just got to keep sort of going after it. Um, and not throw up your hands and, and say, we've, we've lost. Mm -hmm. One of the things that mentions at the very end of the article is the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law earlier last year, which, we, as we've talked about, does pretty much nothing to reduce inflation. Mm -hmm. But one of its key things that a lot of Democrats ran on in the midterms was that it's going to allow Medicare to negotiate prices. And what it does is starting in 2026, Medicare can negotiate prices on 10 drugs, and that list can grow. As this article points out, orphan drugs are not included in the initial list, or as they say, no true orphan drugs are included in the initial list. And they say it's not going to have that much financial impact on pharmaceutical companies in the next decade. But what they do point out is one of the drug manufacturers, uh, Alanam, Alalam, I'm sorry if I'm mm. pronouncing that wrong, they're, they're nixing research on one particular orphan drug for a rare eye disorder while they evaluate the Inflation Reduction Act. And Eli Lilly says it's, it says it might do the same about some of its rare cancer research. Is that really a response to the Inflation Reduction Act, or is that simply an excuse to, to cut R&D on some of these things that some people may be waiting patiently for? Um, I don't know enough specific about those drugs, whether sure. whether that was going to be a dry hole and they just have used it as an excuse. I suspect that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, because if the drug really was showing promise, I don't think the, you know, the new legislation is going to stop them from doing that. I think in all likelihood, it was one of those where, and again, remember only about 12% of the drugs that make it through clinical trials and get it approved. Right. So at various stages, some very early, some very late, you go, you know what, this just isn't working. 
Um, and so in all likelihood, it's a scenario where they thought these aren't going to work and they say, hey, let's, let's blame it on a piece of legislation we don't like and scare the public that, well, you know, if you, you expand that list anymore, we're not going to cure cancer, which really is, is hard to believe from a, from a logic perspective. I mean, I, I don't think the legislation really did anything. No. It doesn't include enough drugs. And I don't think the solution is the government, quote unquote, negotiating prices. I think it's getting more free market economy um, principles injected into it. Mm -hmm. But I also don't for one instant believe a drug company is going to give up on a drug that really was showing promise just because this law passed. Right. Finally, I just want to, as we, as, cause we pride ourselves in being provider advocates, do providers, do doctors have a story to tell here when it comes to reforming how drugs are, are priced and developed in this country, either in front of Congress or in front of the drug companies? Yeah, and, and there's been a few examples recently of doctors <laughs> jumping into the middle of this and doing the right thing when the system didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, to a large degree, the doctors get sort of caught in the middle of wanting to prescribe something for a patient. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. And then the patient not being able to afford it. What a horrible position for the doctor to be in. Um, but the example I'm thinking about is there was a uh, Alzheimer's drug that got approved, a Biogen drug, which really had very limited success. And so the doctors, the neurologists, et cetera, looked at this it. This is Helm, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's not that great of a drug, okay? And it was obscenely expensive when it came out. And you know what? Nobody prescribed it. And part of that was the doctors going, look, I'm just not going to spend this kind of money on a drug that has limited success rate anyway that's mm -hmm. doing the right thing i mean let's not throw money down something that doesn't work um and so you know doctors have actually been doing what isn't their job which is good for them you know it's interesting you bring up adjuhelm because we did discuss last year uh the editorial board of the wall street journal complained multiple times and people who would generally you would think are pretty free market mm -hmm. complained multiple times when medicare said they weren't going to cover the drug because it wasn't as effective as they wanted it to be mm -hmm. So that, that's a that's a good example. And I hope that we can get more provider stories in here to talk about some of those things. And that may be one of the things you'll hear later this year on the Flatlining podcast. You can read the article from World Magazine. Uh, I will note that there is a paywall after you've read so many articles in a month. Uh, but we'll have it linked in the show notes at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this program. Ron, Happy New Year. Thanks so much for joining us on our first episode in 2023 for the Flatlining Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. As we continue to think about money, think about this for our final thought today. The S&P Global Ratings December report downgraded its view on the U.S. nonprofit healthcare sector to negative. The report says that it will take multiple years for nonprofit healthcare to recover. This is in part because of the skyrocketing labor costs and weaker cash flows following the COVID-19 pandemic. Nonprofit healthcare includes university institutions and religiously affiliated hospitals. And in its negative outlook, the report said that even though labor costs may come down in the short term, they're still stubbornly higher than they were prior to the pandemic, and that this will impede cash flow and margins into 2023 and beyond. The Moody's and Fitch ratings last month also gave similar warnings. 
The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to The Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can engage with Ron and myself, plus other listeners of this program, in our chat, available exclusively on the free Substack app. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.